family at the landing, wonderful to see you and to worship the Lord together with you. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, make sure to take a gift that we have for you out in the foyer. It's a mug with some candy in it, information about the church. Take one if you're a first-time guest. We're glad you're here. Also, this message is a departure from Revelation and an attention to 1 Timothy 3 that Larry just read because every fall we like to take a pause from what we're doing and revisit why we're a church, who we are, how God made us, how he sustains us, where we're going. It serves also then as the first bookend to Pastor uh, Dr. Rick Perhai's message next Sunday as the second bookend for our Global Missions Week. There's wonderful blessing beyond Rick Perhai's message next Sunday morning. Next Sunday evening, the shore service includes hearing from a Middle East global partner among us in the evening, so return for that. We have the privilege of pondering why we exist as a church. Why does the landing exist? About five years ago, a Bible study was formed in uh, Stephanie and Kevin Johnson's basement, and, and dreams were dreamt about becoming a church, and the landing was formed, and we've been going for about five years. What would I say is most radically true about the landing? What is the landing? It's not a person. It's not a person or any group of persons. It's not gathered around anybody's pain. Pain doesn't unite us or drive us. We don't even have a purpose. Clearly, we don't even have a purpose. We don't have a unique contribution to make like like some uh, man-made institution that gets its mandate from its own unique purpose. We don't have a unique purpose. We have one reason to exist, and that is we exist because God has given us a vision of himself. That's the main and only reason we exist. We exist to say our God is gloriously high and sovereign and merciful in giving his son for sinners like us that by his Holy Spirit we're transformed out of darkness into light. And we want to savor that in worship more than we like eating together. And and we want to strengthen that in all the ministries and teams and teaching and fellowship and and interactions we do with each other. And we want to spread that hope in Christ to our neighbors and the nations as far and as deep and as rich and as sweet as we can. No cost is too high to savor, strengthen, and spread that vision. We get that vision from passages like the one Larry just read in 1 Timothy 3. Look carefully at it. I'm going to read it again. And I want you to see what Paul's burden is as he writes to his his mentoree, Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of a church called Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. So it's just like Paul, by the Spirit, is writing to us here at the landing. He says, I hope to come to you soon. He's a long way away from Timothy in Ephesus, but he wants to come to them. And in the meanwhile, and whether he comes or not, he's writing these things to them, and these things refers to his whole letter. He says, if I delay, you may know, he wants them to know, that there's a way one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. He goes on to say in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, 
seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So what is Paul doing here? He clearly says his intention. He says to Timothy and to us, I want you to act a certain way in the household of God. I want you to be transformed. I want you to think and feel different. I want you to have different passions. I want you to care about things that fit with God and with Christ. He calls it godliness. Godliness, that is, let the people of the church of the landing have zeals and passions and sorrows and griefs that match Christ's. That's godliness. He wants to create that. He wants to, even though he's far away from Timothy and Ephesus, and even though the writers of Scripture are, are physically far away from us, they write this to us and say, there's a way I want you to be. I want you to live this way. I want you to act and talk and think and feel this way. I want to know what you laugh about and cry about, what you spend your money on, what you invest your time in, what gets you motivated and excited. Those things reveal godliness. And the Apostle Paul does not say, get ready, I've got a long list of things you have to do. He doesn't give a moralistic list. He doesn't give a list of duties. He doesn't give a list of practical steps you can do. Six steps to godliness. You could probably find a website that's defined like that. That isn't what the Bible does, and it isn't what Paul does. What does he do? How does he create this godliness in us? He gives a vision of the church. Look at verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The first thing he says is that we're a household. God has a family. He's the head of the household. Christ is our elder brother. We are all adopted members of the household, just like Larry just prayed. The reason why parenthood and marriage and husbands and wives and men and women even exist on the, in the world, even from Adam and Eve all the way down to today and until Christ returns, the reason why families, parents, marriages exist in the world is so that we would know what God means when he says, I'm the householder, you're in my household. Everything we are, everything we do, is designed intentionally by God so that we might enjoy Him supremely forever, including get married and have families. Every time we deviate from God's design for biblical manhood and womanhood, marriage, biblical sexuality, the design for the family, Everything goes awry. Everything turns into chaos. Everything results in ultimate death. Paul gives a vision. You're the household of God. God was present in Moses' tabernacle, in Solomon's temple. He's supremely present in the person of his son, who he crushed and in three days rebuilt again, the death and resurrection of Christ. And now by the Holy Spirit poured out, I, God, by my Spirit, am present in the household of God. It's not this building. It's not this building. It's you and me by the Spirit of God dwelling within us and among us. And whether you realize it or not, you desire it more than you can possibly even describe. He also calls us the church of the living God. Whenever the Bible uses the phrase the living God, it means the living and present God who's here with us. That's what the phrase means. It's in contradistinction against dead idols who can't go anywhere, be with anyone, or don't live at all. 
Listen to the way Paul talks about the living God in 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's not anything like the temples that Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus. The temples of Artemis. That was the name of the Greek God who was worshipped by most of the people in Ephesus. Big, tall pillars and, and big, high roofs and buttresses on top of those pillars. And people would flock in to worship Artemis because they wanted fertility and fruitfulness and bounty. And, and, an, and another name for Artemis's uh, God uh, consort was Diana. And so they worshipped Diana and Artemis in Ephesus. That's what Timothy was dealing with. And what a wonderful warning this passage provides for our Western culture to say, your Artemises and your Dianas will rise like a spark and they will flame out. Every idol that you create for yourself will ultimately die and disappoint you. There is one God, one living God among all so-called gods which are no gods. And we were made to savor Him, to strengthen ourselves in Him, and spread the news of His Son far and wide. That's what Paul calls Timothy and the church at Ephesus, and by the Spirit us included, to do. He says we're the household of God, the church of the living God, and then he calls us the pillar and buttress of truth. And surely that comes to mind because there were, there were tall Greek pillars and buttresses all around and through Ephesus. Like the pillar of fire and smoke back in the Old Testament that led the people of Israel out of captivity through the wilderness and to salvation, so also the church, indwelt by the person of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit, is meant to be the pillar of guidance of truth in the world today, leading all who will follow Him by faith, the true Israel, into the same salvation. The buttress is nothing other than this big, tall structure on which the roof sets on top of the pillars, and we exist like a pillar with the buttress of the truth of Christ on top of us, and we have to just stand here. We don't need to fret and worry. We don't need to sweat and run around like a chicken with our head cut off. You can let the world go to hell in a handbasket. We're going to stand like a pillar. Let the storms come. Let the armies come. Let the earthquakes come. We're going to stand for the truth. God being our helper, let the landing stand for the truth. No matter who stands behind this pulpit, no matter whose eldership or deacon, no matter who's involved in any leadership of any ministry, let it be that the landing be a pillar where everybody can come and hear and find refuge in the truth. I'm not just preaching for today. I'm preaching for 25, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now until Christ comes back. So how does Paul get from this vision of the church, household of God, church of the living God, pillar and buttress of truth, how does he get from that to, I got behavior, Timothy, I want you to do. I have ways I want you to relate to people. I, I have ways I want you to communicate to the other people in Ephesus, and then all the churches after you, including the landing in Duluth, Minnesota in 2022, are going to act a certain way. How do I get them to act a certain way after I've heralded the vision? Answer, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery 
of godliness. What does he mean by that? He says there is a mystery for how a vision of God in the church produces godliness in people. That mystery of godliness is another way of talking about the gospel. The mystery, when the Bible refers to it, especially Paul, is is what was hidden in the Old Testament is now revealed in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people, Jew and Gentile, can become the true Israel by faith. It's always in Paul's mind that the mystery is proclaimed for the salvation of those people and for their godliness. It's always in his mind. For instance, listen to Romans 16, 25 through 27. Listen to how the mystery results in obedience. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. See, the mystery is the gospel. But here's what it does. That was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, which have been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. Or Colossians 1, 25 through 28. Listen for the same thing. The mystery is the gospel, and it brings about a certain behavior in people. Listen carefully. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Undeniable. When Paul says back in 1 Timothy 3, there's a mystery of godliness, it's because the gospel is going to be on display, hidden now revealed, and it's going to create the godliness that it requires. Isn't this fantastic? There is no secret list of do's and don'ts in this church. (laughs) There is no secret moral duties that you got to get to know after being here a few years. No way. There is only a proclamation of the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ and that mystery of godliness takes over in your life and all of a sudden you find yourself thinking and wanting and desiring different things. New fires start burning in your bones. And you say, I want to go to Japan and join the stewards in the cause of leading the Japanese people to be as beautiful before the eyes of God by salvation as those flowering trees are to my eyes. I want to want what Jesus wants. I want to hate what Jesus hates. I want to walk in close fellowship with him. I want the mystery of godliness to come to pass in my life. I want to say with Paul at the beginning of verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I want to say how great our salvation is. I want to proclaim that greatness in the sanctuary, in the conversations and fellowship and in encouragement, and in counseling, and I want to proclaim the greatness of that salvation to my neighbors and the ends of the earth. So as I go through these six truths that, that Paul gathers from a hymn, it was, it was a song. We don't know the melody, but we can see the format of the next six sentences in chapter six, or 3, verse 16, were repeated and they were sung. That means this is big. 
This is defining. This is the stuff they remembered, and this is the stuff they put on stones with carvings, and this is how they ordered themselves around these six sentences. This is the mystery revealed here, and as you and I reflect on it together, briefly each point, godliness is going to well up inside you right now. He's going to work it in you. He's going to work in you the very thing he commands, and that's the power of his grace. First, it says, he was manifested in the flesh, and it's of course referring to Christ. He was manifested in the flesh as a reference to his birth, of course, and to his death on the cross and all of his fleshly life in between. He's fully God and he's fully man. This is a a reference to the fact that he took on flesh and blood. He took on a body so that it could be broken, so that your body, which deserves to be broken for my sin or your sin, will never be broken. He took on blood as an embryo in Mary's womb. So that he could spill and pour out that blood as a sacrificial atonement for my sin and for yours and for the sins of the world. All the lies and heresies that say Christ only appeared to have a body can be obliterated by one short phrase of this song. He was manifested in the flesh. Why? Not just so that we'd be forgiven. Oh, praise his name for our full forgiveness, past, present, and future sins. But that we would be zealous to join him in godliness. Listen to Titus 2.14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from our all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. There's this good news of the gospel, but it goes on. A people who are zealous for good works. Meditating on the cross of Christ And how Christ was manifested in the flesh produces zeal for good works in us. It's the mystery of godliness. The second sentence, he was vindicated by the Spirit. What does the word vindicated mean? Shown to be right, proven to be justified. That's what vindicated means. Why is that important after he was manifest in the flesh? Because on the cross, it looked like God had failed. On the cross, it looked like Jesus was guilty. On the cross, it looked like his flesh got him into trouble and he was a criminal like any other. Is all the promises and the hope of the Messiah a failure because Christ ended up dying on the cross? No. That's when he was glorified as his most obedient. But it's the vindication by the Spirit that raises Jesus from the dead that proves everything he did on the cross was right and true and glorifying to God. It proves our salvation is real. It proves all the promises of the Old Testament are real. So Paul says in Romans 1, 4, and Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. 2 Peter 3, 11 explains how this turns into our godliness. 2 Peter 3 says, Since all these things, this world is thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you and I to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If you think about it, Christ is raised from the dead. He's alive right now. He's not only listening to me speak. He's listening to every thought you're having while I'm speaking. And he's listening and watching every thought that I'm having while I'm speaking. And he rules over all the world in all places at all times. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And we saw that in Revelation 4 and 5, he took the scroll and he's opening the seals. And God's plan is marching forward. Praise his holy name. If you and I will gather ourselves by the power of the Spirit before him one day, let's back out of that and act how we might wish to act right now if that day were tomorrow. 
or by the end of today or before I'm done with this sentence. He was seen by angels, the next phrase of the song of godliness proclaims. At his birth, they sung over him. At his temptation, they attended him. At his resurrection, they moved the stone away so that the disciples could peer in and see that he had been raised. This great salvation was observed by angels. And if angels who are infinitely lower than Christ himself see and behold and bear witness to the salvation that we proclaim, then how much more trustworthy is Christ himself who is infinitely superior to all angels? He is the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. If angels are going, man, I can't wait to peek over the balcony of heaven and see the redemption that Christ has wrought, then how great a Christ we have to worship. No wonder then, the fourth phrase of this song producing godliness in us is he was proclaimed among the nations. I take that to be a reference to the proclamation of the gospel that happened in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached Christ and him crucified and raised. I also take it to mean all the preaching that's going on around the world right now, all the preaching that has happened over the last 2,000 years and will continue until Christ returns. Preaching and proclamation of every sort and kind, not just formal somebody standing behind a pulpit, but preaching and proclamation from men, women, and children in all settings, all places, and all times. Let's take over the internet for the preaching of Christ. Let's take over media for the preaching of Christ. Let's bring order in our communities through every means possible in order that the preaching of Christ might go forward and lost sinners might be saved. Let the worst of Duluth, let the neediest, in our area. Let those who feel themselves the furthest away in irreversible, unredeemable condition of despair come to Christ and find salvation. Is there anyone too far? Do you have a family member who's too far? Was I too far? Were you? Is there anyone who lives on the face of the earth who is too far for the reach of God's saving arm to grasp them and save them and draw them to himself? No. He was proclaimed among the nations. The very mission of the church is, if you got it inside you, you can't cork it in. You better let it out. Anytime somebody comes along and says, you Christians ought to keep your worship and your behind closed doors, no windows on your rooms kind of secrets in your little building, you do that and we'll be happy with you. They don't get it. They don't get the very fact that the very essence of the gospel is to burst forth out of us. If it's real in me, it's going to be real out of me. Otherwise, it is not real. No such thing as private Christianity. It's an oxymoron. And the result then is the sure believing of Christ in the world. Those very nations that have the gospel preached to them, believe Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that he came to bind the strong man in order that he might plunder the strong man's house. And what he meant by that was, I'm not working with the devil. I bound the devil so that I could go into the nations and receive to myself souls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. If you go to the hardest nation on the planet, 
you have every reason to believe God is at work there and he's going to give you souls. You could just sit in the Sunday school class this morning and you could just hear about one of the hardest, darkest nations on the planet, Japan, and you could hear story after story after story after story about how God used Andrew and Lydia Stewart to win the lost out of the darkness of Japan. Christ is gathering souls for himself. It's what he's doing in the world. That's what's going on through the world. The question is, how engaged are we as a church in fostering and supporting his mission? Finally, it says, he was taken up into glory, and I take that to be a reference to his ascension. Oh, how wonderfully this guides us in what we should be doing. Listen to what the first disciples were doing after Jesus ascended. It's exactly what we should be doing in the mystery of godliness ourselves. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is about seven weeks after he was raised from the dead. And they worshipped him. Our worship is the obedience of the example of Luke 24, 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. With great joy. We're going to worship Christ with great joy. We're going to hunt and pursue great joy with everything that is within us because it's our example and our command here in Luke 24, 52. And then it says, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, we know from the rest of the Bible that the temple is now the people of God. And we're going to continually invest ourselves in the people of God. Blessing God for the advance of the gospel of God on the earth. There is a glorious vision here captured in this hymn sung and reminded to Timothy by Paul as he's writing it. It's the answer for who we are as a church. This is who we are. If you look around our church and if you look at anybody or any ministry and you, you hear any word about anything that might be happening in this little tiny toddler church of five years old and you see something, any little thing, even though it's full of flaws and full of holes like Swiss cheese, you still say, yep, I think I see the hand of God at work in that little church in little ways. It's all because of God's blessing us with his mystery of godliness. It's to no credit of ourselves. God's the best thing about the landing. He's the best thing about our families and our ministries. He's the best thing about the world and the reason why it's worth bringing a precious new baby into the world like little Alexander James. It's the reason why it's worth living with all your might as long as God gives you breath for the cause of Christ and when he draws it from you saying, I'm ready to come home. Exalting in this mystery of godliness, this great confession that we make as the truth, the gospel, the summary of our faith. It's, it's not something we made, it made us. It's not something we preserve, it preserves us. It's not something we have to prop up like, like a, a little uh, website that we have to keep feeding or we have to get little mugs on them that have all our stuff on them or we have to get t-shirts with it on there. All that stuff is overflow. Jesus is the one sustaining and preserving his church. We are the product. He's the producer. We're the ones that are the reflection of his work on the earth. And what does he mean to do? The outcome is whether it's Proctor or Hermantown or Esco, Cloquet, Carlton or your neighborhood, or whether it's going to Japan or to the ends of the earth to another neighborhood that involves learning to like different food and speak a different language. The cause of Christ remains the same. Glorify God 
the Father. Savor him in worship. Strengthen all the other believers around with joy together in that same gospel and spread it as far and as fast and as furiously as God enables you to do. And the result will be church reviving, soul saving, world washing, century redeeming works of the Holy Spirit. Utterly disproportionate to the smallness of our size. Born to a poor farming family in Scotland in the 1820s was John G. Patton, the eldest of 11 children. He became a Christian as a child in his home, hearing something every day of these six truths that we have just seen in 1 Timothy 3.16. From God's Word, through his mom and dad, watching his father especially early every day, and then after each of the three meals every day, praying in the prayer closet And as he grew and his siblings grew, praying with their dad often every day, not just for Scotland, not just for their village, Thorwald, and not just for the needs of the Patton family, but for the world. In his early 20s, John leaves the village to go to the big city of Glasgow. He has to walk 40 miles to get to the train. His father walked with John for the first six miles and he gave counsel to him and they wept together and prayed together believing the father that he would never see his eldest son again. Likely John would go to the city, he'd stay in the city, and he knew that in John's heart there was a desire to go to the nations, and he thought this was goodbye. John Patton writes in his biography, my father stood near me with silent prayers and his tears for me, and he grasped my hand and said, God bless you, son, your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Patton, John goes on in his biography sweetly and poignantly to say, unable to say more, my father's lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and I saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and sore to carry me further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I'd left him, and just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His head still uncovered and his heart, and I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears, till his form faded from my gaze and then hasting on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father and a mother as he had given me. John G. Patton went to Glasgow. He became an urban missionary. He had 600 people, poor people from the Bowery of Glasgow coming to hear the gospel from him every single day. He led many of them to Christ. He was so very successful that mission agencies began to to support him and add him into their number, and they wanted him to be an urban missionary in Glasgow, Scotland for the rest of his life. He met a, a, a young woman that he fell in love with and married. Her name was Mary, and they felt a calling not to Glasgow, but to go to the far ends of the earth where James Cook had named the New Hebrides Islands, and so he went to a place we now call Vanuatu an island of Tana with his young wife. Three months after they arrived in Tana, she gave birth to their child, Peter. 
And six days later, Mary died. Thirty-six days later, Peter died. And John was left alone just after he arrived on the island of Tana. The island of Tana was populated by savage missionaries, excuse me, savage cannibals, eating missionaries. I better read my manuscript carefully. Patton still stayed. He had heard stories about how two previous missionaries, a Mr. Williams and a Mr. I don't remember his friend's name, doesn't really matter, who had gone from Scotland to the same island, and within the time it took for them to arrive on the island, they were clubbed, cooked, and eaten before their boat sailed away. That horrible news hit the supporters and mission agency, London Missionary Society, that John G. Patton was going out with. And so they said over and over to him, do not go to the island of Tana. We lost two missionaries there already to death. They will, in fact, eat you because they are cannibals. It was rather understanding. That was their tradition. Harrison Williams, I see it in my manuscript now, Harrison Williams. Before John left, one of the leaders of the mission agency, Mr. Dixon, had come to him and said, please don't go to Tana and follow these two men. You too will be eaten by cannibals. Here's Patton's response. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. There you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton left, lost his family, he buried them, and then he decided that he had to sleep near their graves for several days so that the cannibals wouldn't get at his family. He writes how difficult it was both on Tana and then he returned back to another island called Aniwa. He writes how difficult it was to endure the attacks and the persecution and the hatred. He he even began to understand these savages that were on the island and why they hated him so. Other men who were the same height and look and skin color as him had come with great wicked intent and had robbed and stolen and harmed and, and toxically polluted with sickness these same savages so they thought he was of the same sort. Until over time, he began to slowly win their hearts. He did not see any conversions in Tana, but in returning, after his wife died and son died, he married again and returned to another island of Aniwa. He was opposed there repeatedly and constantly, and God rescued him over and over again. But he saw a sweetening and a softening. He he led one to Christ who became his servant, and Abraham, and then others began to come to Christ. And slowly the, the church of Jesus Christ formed in Aniwa back in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s under the ministry of John G. Patton and his second wife, whose name was Maggie. Here, one time, after a especially dangerous rescue. Patton writes in his journal, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus in the midst of that terror. I saw a man, I saw him, the Lord, watching over all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. 
The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken and not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ. Who is whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. I looked it up today. That island renamed, and the cluster of islands used to be called the New Hebrides, are called Vanuatu. 21% of the people who live on those islands confess faith in Jesus Christ. That's three times more than the amount of percentage who confess faith in Jesus Christ in the United States. Many can trace their conversions back to those who were led to faith in Christ under John G. Patton. Now hear this. This was new for me this week. In 1833, beginning of John G. Patton's ministry, lots of struggle, lots of pain, lots of death, Charles Darwin went to the South Sea Islands looking for his so-called missing link. He studied the cannibals who lived there on these very islands in the New Hebrides, and he concluded that no creatures were more primitive, and he was convinced that nothing on earth could possibly lift them to a higher level. He thought he had indeed found a lower stratum of humanity that would fit his theory of evolution. He thought he'd found the missing link. I didn't know that. Thirty-four years later, Charles Darwin returned to these same islands, now after the ministry of John G. Patton, To his amazement, he discovered churches, schools, and and homes occupied by some of those former cannibals. In fact, many of them wore clothes and frequently gathered to sing hymns. The reason was soon learned. Missionary John G. Patton had been there proclaiming the truths of salvation. Darwin was so moved by the transformation that he made a generous contribution to the London Missionary Society. Well, all right. Here's what he said, Darwin, I do not believe in God, duh, but if I did, it would be because of what I have seen happen as a result of John G. Patton's preaching the gospel among the New Hebrides Islands. Darwin's missing link is still missing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the cause of Christ around the world. I thank you for how savages can be one to Christ and over a hundred plus years, beget generations who hear the gospel from mom and dad and how I once was lost but now am found, once was blind but now I see. And the amazing grace that transformed Vanuatu and the New Hebrides transforms me and these people and this location and the hardest, most difficult place on the planet that we could imagine for the gospel to take root. Would you raise up this week and in the weeks and months and years and decades ahead John G. Pattons and Jane G. Pattons of every sort, stripe, and kind to go to every place on the planet for the cause of Christ so that century-redeeming, world-reviving, church-strengthening, soul-saving works like this one might happen again. And, O oh Lord, along the way, have fun silencing all the unbelievers. In Jesus' precious, precious, precious name, I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word.